And it's my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of Value Nigeria with Ajibola. On this podcast, we learn principles of value investing and related to even to the Nigerian market. The eventual aim is to leave a lasting legacy even for generations that are yet unborn. In a bid to achieve this aim, a mastery over one's personal finance cannot be overemphasized. Having a good grip over one's personal finance is the basic building block before can even contemplate investing and building wealth. So on the podcast this evening, I'm very privileged to have Dr. Tayo Oyedeji. He is the founder and CEO of Overwood Nigeria, which is a firm that promotes the principles of um, personal finance, of saving and investing, and helps people even to achieve their financial goal of building lasting wealth. He's a well-known public speaker. He's an astute writer. And really, it's a, it's a rare privilege even to have him on the podcast today. I shared the vision of the podcast and what the podcast aimed to achieve with him. And I'm glad it resonated with him. And he was really keen about coming onto the podcast, even to share his thoughts about personal finance, about investing, and about building lasting wealth. My guest on the podcast today holds a BSc in mechanical engineering, even from the University of Illinois, and he has his master's in business administration from the Oxford University in England. His doctoral degree, or the PhD as it's um, commonly called, is in media management, and he got that even from the University of Missouri. And he's an assistant professor of media management and economics, even at the University of Georgia in United States of America. It's a huge privilege even for us to have Dr. Tayo Yedigi even on the podcast this evening. Um, do you just want to say hello to the listeners of the podcast, sir? Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you so much. Spectacular. Really nice to have you here, sir. I'm just going to go right into the deep end, sir. Now, what is your background and how has your background shaped even the person that you are today? Um, background, I think the, the most unique thing about me is actually the fact that my grandfather was the traditional ruler of a small town close to Obomosha in Iowa State. And so some of my earliest memories was watching him with his chief make decisions around even basic things like divorce, like land issues, like just everything, just watching that I thought was a bit different um, in, in, in some ways from many other people around me. But my father was an accountant um, and my mom was a school teacher. And so um, that meant that my mom was often at home with us while we we're growing up. And, um, and so she was a huge influence on me and my love for books and academics and all that stuff. Um, I went to FGC Obomosha boarding school from there to University of Lorraine where I studied mechanical engineering. For me, Lorraine, I got a scholarship to go to America, uh, my master's and PhD. And then finally, after, actually, this is also quite unique in that um, after my PhD, I wanted to transition back to the private sector. So I went to Oxford for my MBA. Um, from there, I moved back to Nigeria where I became CEO of um, of Stockholm. And my last professional job was as managing director of Stockholm Africa in South Africa. So I was um, I was responsible for 34 countries and about 700 employees across 
our continent from Algeria all the way down to Zimbabwe. Um, so what do I do now? Right now, I'm, um, I'm, I'm leading a startup called Overwood. And the goal of Overwood is to help make investments accessible to um, people across Africa. So that's in a bit larger than a nutshell is all of me. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing that with us, sir. The first thing that strikes me, looking at your background, looking at um, your academic sojourn, is that going to America, was that for a master's degree or directly into PhD? Going to America was, was a, com- a combo master's and PhD. Um, so I, I just did both together. Um, but I think the key thing about going to America was that um, when I was growing up, I always wanted to study in America, but I knew we couldn't afford it. Um, so, and at that time, I didn't even know it was possible for children of middle class or, or, or poor people to, to go abroad for a master's degree. And so I was fortunate that one of my colleagues, when I started working, got a scholarship to go to America. And so I just, I just spoke, I was like, what did you do? How did you do it? Cause I knew his background was similar to mine. And so, um, I went on and studied really hard and. That was how I eventually got a scholarship to go study abroad. Okay, okay. Thank you very much for that clarification. Now, a very, very important point. Now, was there actually a moment or was there an occurrence or was there an incident, a time where you could point back to and say, this was the turning point in my life or this was the point at which I realized or I determined that I wasn't going to live the average life, that I was going to live a higher than average life? Hmm. I feel like I'd always known that I was that I was kind of different, and I and I know that sounds really weird, but <laughs> that's the that's the that's the one way I can put it. So I remembered when I was um when I was sixteen, I was talking to some guy about who was working. It was about maybe like 30, 34. and he told me about his company, and I just looked at him and I said, "Wow." I think eventually I'm going to be the CEO of a company like yours, and I'd like if you would work for me. And the guy looked at me like, is this guy crazy? This guy hadn't even, doesn't even have a first degree, and he's talking about being the CEO of a company. So, you know, I knew that growing up that I wanted to, I wanted to just do more. I wanted to be more. And I, I don't know where that came from. Um, so I felt that was, that was always there. But the one time that I knew that I could make something of myself was um, when I started working in eventually. And um, I had an option between staying on in banking and moving on to join a startup advertising agency that was just starting. And moving to the agency meant that I was going to lose a lot of money because I was earning about 80,000 naira at the bank. And this new agency that was just starting from scratch was going to pay me 50000 naira a month. But I just looked at the trajectory. I knew I was going to be able to learn how to manage a small business. Because, I mean, in my view, the best place to start your career is a small business. I knew I was going to learn operations, learn, you know, strategy, learn marketing, learn, you know, just everything about running a small business. And at 21 years of age, I gave up about 60% of my salary. Was it 60%? Maybe like 40% of my salary to go do that. And 
it was because I just knew that in the future I was going to be running businesses and that I needed to learn how to run a business. So I think that first sacrifice was the first time, at least when I talked to people that knew me then, that it became clear to them that this guy was different. If at that age he was willing to give up that much to go learn, you know, they just thought, oh, this guy is different, you know. Well, thank you very much for that as well. Also, looking at your academic background, you started with a BSc in um, mechanical engineering and ended up in media through your PhD and in your academic career as well. What informed that switch? And has it always been media that has been the seed right from the beginning or was it engineering or how did you go about that? In my life, I do two things very well. The first is finance. The second is, is marketing, not even media, marketing. So I've always vacillated between, like, you remember the story I told, I left banking to yes. go to this startup agency. Eventually, I left agency like to go back into banking and finance, you know. And so I've always just worked between those two industries um, because I feel like finance is how I make a lot of money. Um, marketing is what I'm passionate about. So my view of life is you need to find a way to do what you're good at and what you're passionate about and what's going to make you a lot of money. Right. So, but, you know, engineering was different. My father just basically said, you're going to be an engineer. So go study engineering. It it was never what I wanted. It was never my goal or passion. Um, I probably would have studied computer science if you had left it to me alone. Because I always wanted, I was always passionate about tech and building new things and all that stuff. And the one thing I've always done, even in my marketing and, and finance career, is to use a lot of technology to do things in a slightly different way. So I'll say that the, the thread that we through my entire career is technology, but the key pillars have always been to uh, marketing and, and finance. Your belief in technology is really, really evident, even by Overwood, which we'll get to at some point in this um, conversation. Um, how did you venture into finance or what was your introduction into finance like? Yeah. So um, my my introduction into finance was actually my first job. I worked in in banking at um, a relatively big bank back in the days, but I was in treasury marketing and and investment management. And so just saying that, I remember there was a gentleman, and I still remember his name because because this was ninety nine. This was twenty two years ago. So this gentleman back in those days was leaving off his investments, right? He had made enough money and he had placed the money with us and we're paying him dividend every month. And that was what he was leaving off. And I always just thought that was, that was amazing. That somebody called at 50 or something, spent the rest of their lives just leaving off dividend. And so um, saying that in finance was, was a huge thing for me it was then that I I decided I was going to retire at 35 right Um, and so I began to work towards that I began to save I began to invest I didn't make it but eventually I was able to leave corporate at 40 I was able to retire and just from then do what I wanted to do instead of what I had to do right so that was my introduction into finance and then eventually after my MBA I went back and worked in a financial service um, firm again and just you know and I've always also been managing investments, both for myself, for my family, for my 
father's estate fund. Just, you know, I've always managed investments on behalf of people. So it was always a huge part of me and what I did. Perfect. You walked right into my next question. There are a teeming generation of Nigerian youths listening to this podcast or listening to this message. Now, what practical steps would you advise a listener who wants to achieve lasting wealth and financial independence to take in order to achieve his or her dreams? Well, the first is that you're never going to invest enough to the financial independence unless you make a lot more money for most people. Right, so the first stage is to make a lot more money. Right, how do you make a lot more money? You either start a business or you invest into yourself and and build up a portfolio or a, a series of skills that make you very valuable so that you can get paid a lot of money. Right, so it's it's either of two things. You build a business or you get paid a lot of money. Now, what that happens for most people as they begin to make a lot more money, either through their business or through their salaries, their lifestyles begin to creep up to match their income, right? So this gentleman who him and his wife and his two kids were living in a three-bedroom apartment suddenly gets a 50% increase and now is looking for a five-bedroom duplex, right? Because now he's made a lot more. Right, he used to drive a Toyota Corolla, and now he wants a, a Mercedes-Benz GL five oh five five zero or something. You see what I'm saying? As he makes more, he spends more. Now the mistake people make is that they think about wealth as what you're able to spend, but wealth is really what you're able to keep. Right? You make a million dollars and spend a million dollars, you're not wealthy. Right? You make five hundred thousand dollars and spend a hundred thousand. You're four hundred thousand dollars wealthier than you used to be, right? So wealth is about keeping some of what you make. Well, so the first step obviously is to make a lot more, and then the second step is to keep a significant portion of what you make. From two thousand and eleven or so onwards, I saved at least forty percent of what I made every single month, at least forty percent of it. Right, so what that did for me was it began to create a stream of income that could either through investments or through other things, then give birth to other streams of income and on and on and on and on. And then that virtuous circle eventually makes you financially independent. Right. So it's about making a lot more, but most importantly, saving a significant portion of what you make and then learning to invest it so that it keeps growing and becoming more and more until you're financially independent. Until one day you wake up and all of a sudden, every single one of your needs can be met by the investment income that comes from your investments. I did some digging and I saw that you are a public speaker and you have lots of engagement and you have a theme that you usually talk about, which is the big eight financial formula. Now, I know time might not allow us to go through everything, but do you want to just share some insights on this? Well, I think the way to look at it is most of us either make money from income, from a salary income, or from investments, right? And many of us choose either to invest or to spend, right? And so if you're at the place where you're still making your income primarily from salary or from your business, at that stage, you're still a worker, right? You're working for your business. What we all want to do is to choose 
what portion of that income to spend and what portion to invest, right? The more we can invest, the more we move to the place where we can live off investment income rather than salary income, right? And so the way to financial independence is to, first of all, make some money, invest a significant portion of what you make, and then finally live frugally, live in a way that you're not, you're not, you're not spending everything, right? So that your, your lifestyle is minimal in as, in as many ways as possible. That way, eventually your investment income will be able to cover your lifestyle and then you can stop working and do the things that are important to you, right? So it doesn't even mean that you have a lot of money. It just means that your lifestyle is such that the income from your investment can cover every single one of your bills. Let me give an example. I have a friend that makes about plus or minus $500,000 a year, right? Now, this guy is always looking for new ways of making money. Right, like he's always looking for deals. He's always looking for the next thing. He's always, you know, from crypto to to NFT. He's just always desperately trying to make more money. So one day I called him. I was like, bro, like it's like you're never going to retire because even though you make so much money, your lifestyle is such that your kids, the three of them, are in a school in England where they pay about thirty-five thousand pounds a year. For school fees, so your school fees expense is already a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand pounds, almost one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? You live in one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in in Manhattan, so you're paying so much for your mortgage. And I just walked him down, and by the time we were done, it was clear that just on basic living and lifestyle, he was spending about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars every year. Right. So this guy is making a lot of money, but he's not wealthy. Right. Because if he were to lose his job tomorrow, I can assure you that in three years, this guy will be, will be, will be totally broke. He wouldn't have anything. While relatively, I know people who make a lot less, who make $50,000, who make $30,000 a year and are able to save and minimize their lifestyles in such a way that even if they lose their income, they can still keep going for months and years without that income. And so it's a two-way thing. First of all, we make a lot more. Then we minimize our lifestyles so that eventually we can cover our lifestyle with our investment income. That's the model I teach. Thank you very much for, for that insight. Sir. Now, I know you wrote a book entitled How I Retired at 40 and How You Can Prepare for Early Retirement Yourself. Now, Somebody might be listening to this and might be saying that's only possible because you emigrated out of the country, you earn in dollars, that the reality on ground in Nigeria, considering the inflation rate, considering the, the low general income, that this is not achievable in the Nigerian context. What, what would you say to this, sir? I'll say, I'll say the person is probably right. It's very, very tough to do this um, 100% in the Nigerian context. But it's possible. Why do I say it's possible? It's possible because I know people who have done similar things, maybe not in Lagos, but outside Lagos, right? I know people who have built a lifestyle. Let me give you an example. So I'm from Obomosha, United States, right? And the last time I went to visit Obomosha, this is what happened. 
I I went with my mom to visit one family. And I remembered getting to their living room and it was really sparse. There was very, you know, the furnishing wasn't exclusive, wasn't great by any means. But I'll never forget how tranquil their lives were and how much I just looked at them and I thought, man, these guys have something that I wish I could have. They have a peace of mind that seems inaccessible to many of us. You know what I'm saying? What it meant was that they had actually worked, made a bit of money, and they had chosen a location where their money went further, right? So if you're thinking, well, I'm going to work for a bit and then retire in Lagos and and I'll be okay. Probably not. That's why a lot of our fathers retired back to their hometowns where their lifestyle could be a lot less expensive and then their retirement or their investment income could cover their lifestyle. So my view is that people need to think about, we call it location arbitrage, which is make your money in Lagos or make your money in London, for instance, and then move to Leeds or move to Wigan or some other place where your money will go further than it would if you were living in, in London. Um, we did it in, in, in America, for instance. So my wife was working in Atlanta. I was working in Athens. But we lived in Beaufort, which is a small city right in the middle of the two of them. So we weren't taking on Atlanta's cost or Athens' cost. We were taking on Beaufort cost while earning money in those big cities. So I, I don't think it's impossible. It's a bit more difficult. But, you know, all things are possible to them that believes. So I think it's possible. Now, um, going into investing, I know you've been a proponent of investing. You've been investing for many, many years. Now, there are different brands of investing that people tout. Value, growth, mm-hmm. dividends, momentum. You can name a billion. Is there any that you subscribe to or is there any that you feel gives an edge in the long run? Omar, I'm a conservative investor. I'm the most <laughs> conservative investor you've ever found. I may not make big money, but you're not. I'm not losing money. That's the key thing for me. Like uh, The first thing I say is that the number one law of investment is don't lose money, right? And that's a key component of my investment philosophy. I remember talking to some guys that made 80% on his investment last year by doing, you know, some NFTs, some 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 cryptocurrencies, some this, some that. And I was like, man, I wish I could make that. Then at the back of my mind, I thought he could easily have also lost 80%, right? So I'm going to make I'm going to make 10 or 15%, but I'm not going to lose 20% no matter what happens. I can always cut my losses. I can always, you know, do a lot of things to ensure that I don't lose 80%, right? But I'm also not going to make 80% and I'm and I'm comfortable with that. I can live with that. Because in my view investment is a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? If you find anybody pushing you to just go, 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 get aggressive, go, go, you know. What you find is that, you know, there are often perils along the way that's, that seem too good to be true, right? So I do a lot of um, money markets, um, got a, a really big farm that does some good numbers. Um, we do a little bit of um, of stock, but blue chip stock primarily. We do a little bit of lending-backed instruments, but mostly conservative money market stuff, 
right? Um, and they will build a really good portfolio. For, for Overwood, for instance, we build a really good portfolio that is heavy on money markets, light on stock, very, very light on blue chip stuff, but also with some credit backed instruments. Right. So what we guarantee at Overwood, because, you know, the key thing for people in Africa is that nobody wants to lose their money. And once the money is lost, it's tough to get it back. Right. So what we guarantee at Overwood is that you're never going to lose your money. No matter what happens, we'll manage your funds in such a way that your principal plus interest always comes back. Now, you may not make 50 percent, but we're over around 10 percent per annum plus or minus on your investments, right? So you're making quite a bit, but we're not taking risk because, you know, there's a direct relationship between risk and return. So the more risk you take, the more return you're likely to make. And the more return you chase, the more risk you definitely have to take, right? So that's my view. You mentioned that you do a little bit of stocks, blue chips to be precise, is that blue chips in yeah. Nigeria or blue chips in the American market? Both, both. Yeah, so we do blue chip in Nigeria, but also blue chip internationally. Um, now, just because you mentioned crypto and NFTs and all the latest craze in town, um, I know this oh, might no. be a little bit. <laughs> this might be a little bit <laughs> controversial. <laughs> I don't know if you want to delve into that murky waters, but um, if you want no, to, what's your I, I view? I don't mind though. <laughs> I don't, I don't mess with it though. I've got a really small crypto offering, that crypto portfolio, very small, personal. We don't mess with overwood funds in, in crypto or anything like that. But I've got a small crypto portfolio for myself, very, very small, just to see how this madness plays out because I don't understand it, right? My view is that people should invest in things they understand, right? Other people understand it and some people seem to be doing well with it, right? So I don't have a problem with it. I used to be very anti-crypto, but I'm not anymore. Now I'm just like, it's an oddity I don't understand. So I'm not going to tell people to go into it or not to go into it either. But for me, I'll just rather deal in things that I understand. So let me give you an example. One company in my portfolio is Waste Management in America, WM, right? I know what Waste Management does, right? It deals with waste, it manages waste. Yes. People will always have waste. The company is not going under, no matter what happens, right? You know, I'm light on Tesla. I'm not heavy on Tesla because a lot of more aggressive investors will say, go Tesla, go Tesla. Instead of Tesla, I'll do Google. You see what I'm saying? Yes, because I, I know that people will always search. And as long as they're searching, there will be adverts in the search mm -hmm. and Google is always going to make money. And they've even diversified beyond search, right? You see? So... I'm not thinking what's the big thing that I can do right now that will give me 10x return. I'm thinking what is the short thing that is not going to die and die with my money. So it's a very different way of looking at investments. Well, you know, the hot shot of today will tell me, call me old, old, old conservative guy that doesn't get it. Well, I'm also not losing money. <laughs> Warren Buffett always says that the first rule of investing is never lose money. And the second rule is yes. don't forget rule number one. Absolutely correct. Exactly. The return of my capital is much more important than the return on my capital, as people always say. Yes. Now, 
a few years ago you posted something on Twitter and it made the rounds, it made all the blogs and it became very big news. You come and see what Professor Tayo said. And that post was um I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember the exact words. And it was like um people like people paying a lot of attention even to building their own personal houses when instead they should yeah. be renting. That renting might yeah. be a better option for a few people rather than owning their houses. You yeah. want to just say something yeah. quickly about this? <laughs> yeah. For most people, it's smarter to rent. For most people. Mm. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, I can use Lagos or Atlanta as an example, but let me use Lagos. because I guess most of your people will be in Lagos. Right? So to buy a decent house in Lagos, you need about 40 to 50 million naira. A decent house. Right? To rent a decent house in Lagos, you need about 1.5 to 2 million naira. Right? So if you have, if you're going to take a mortgage, right, mortgages in Nigeria are so expensive that it's the most stupid thing in the world. It's almost 22, 25, 30% in some cases per annum, right? That's the rate on some of these mortgages. So first of all, that rate is going to kill you if you're taking a mortgage. Now, if you're not taking a mortgage, that means you have $40 million, right? If you put your $40 million in Overwood, for instance, every year will pay you a minimum of about five million naira, right? So you can take out of that five million, put one point five or two million together, and rent the same house that you would have bought for forty million dollars. But now you're keeping your uh, for forty million naira. Now you're keeping your forty million naira, and you're adding three million to it every year, right? Instead of pushing it into that house. Now, the thing that people say is that owning a house brings you some emotional security and psychological comfort. And I agree because I own houses, but I don't own those houses as an investment or because the math makes sense. It's because I like the houses, right, that I, that I bought. And, I can, and right now I can afford it, right? So I don't mind. It's not my last or my first 40 million era or whatever it is that I'm putting into it. So for most people in Nigeria, the mortgage, if you're going to take a mortgage to buy the house, it's often a really bad financial investment because you're paying way too much. And if you're going to pay the cash, the truth is that there are many, many more ways to make, to use that cash. The opportunity cost of that cash is way too high, right? But if you consider the math and you know that financially is not a very wise decision, but the emotional security you gain plus the psychological comfort you gain from owning your house outweighs the math in that case, then go for the house, right? Then it's good for you. And, you know, if you do the same math in London or in many big cities, you find out that it's the same thing. You gain much more from your investments than from owning a house. Thank you very much for, for that insight, sir. Now, I must apologize because we've gone a little bit over the 30 minutes. But we'll no, be... I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually enjoy... I'm enjoying the gist. Go on. <laughs> now, coming down to Overwood, I, I see yeah. an, ama an amalgamation of a lot of things yeah. about you. Yeah. Bringing tech into it, bringing finance into it, bringing small business management into it. How has the okay. journey been, even with Overwood so far? It's been amazing. We've been almost two years into it, right? We've got about um, quite about ten thousand people wow. that have um, 
that have invested or that have opened up relationships with us across the country. And we're still, you know, sort of getting to understand ourselves and, and, and our clients a little bit better and just, you know, helping them be successful, right? We've, um, we've returned a, almost, yeah, I can't even tell you how much, but we returned a lot of money back to people. So my own goal is to be always be able to return people's money, right? And say that you give us 10 million naira, right? Here is your 10 million naira plus interest anytime you want it. And I'll be able to give it back to you. So we've been, been able to do that consistently for the past two years. Um, we think we're structured to be here for a hundred years. That's why we're not in a hurry, right? I keep telling people that the goal is that in a hundred years, Overwood is still there to give your money to your children's children. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so that's the way we've been, we've been building this. My own family also invests heavily in Overwood, which I, which I, which I'm grateful to them for because it shows the level of, um, confidence. Belief. Yeah. The other day I was looking at my mom's portfolio at the road and I was like, dang, my mom has this much money here. I didn't even know. <laughs> you know, my sisters, my uncle. But beyond us, there are also people from all 36 states of Nigeria. We're looking at delving into Rwanda very soon. We'll do, within the next few years, we'll do Ghana, Kenya, and just keep expanding across the continent. Um, I'm giving people a safe option for their, for their funds. Um, yeah. And um, just because you've mentioned family, um, forgive me, um, I'm going to bring family into this. Um, your, yes. Your kids, Andrea and Andrew. Yes. Are you indoctrinating them into finance? How are you inculcating the principles of finance no. into them? Or? My kids my kids are G's, man. <laughs> Absolute gangsters <laughs> as far as finance is concerned. So one day I was driving with Audrey, where I don't remember where we were going to, but I can see it was somewhere in Austin, Texas. And right beside us was a bunch of teenagers that were in like these really old rickety cars that were just, you know, you know, like that was obviously their first car. So I looked at Audrey and she was looking at them. And I said, Audrey, don't worry. When you grow up, I'm not going to buy you a car like that. So I'll buy you a much nicer car. If possible, I'll even buy you a brand new car. She was like, nope. Mm-hmm. The first thing you should know is that you probably won't buy me a car. I would have made enough money to buy my own car by the time I'm 18. I was like, uh-oh. And then she said, and if you're going to buy me a car, you're not going to buy me a car. I'll take one of your old cars and then you buy yourself a new car. Wow. I was like, ah, I've done a good job. God you, bless you. You have indeed. <laughs> you have indeed. You have indeed. You know, but, and she wasn't saying it out of, she was saying it just the way she was mm-hmm. thinking about it. And I was just so, so, so happy and excited to see that they value money, they respect money. I remembered when my son wanted, um, um, so he, he likes Minecraft, right? And so I was going to buy him a Minecraft game. And so he, he checked it out online. I saw it was $30. And he was like, ah. No, it's too expensive. I don't think you should buy it. I was like, no, but I want I want to buy it. I was like, but it's a lot of money. I was like, well, don't worry, I can afford it. I really can afford it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I feel so bad because it's so expensive. And then when I got it and brought it home for him, give me a big hug. He was really happy, really excited. 
And I was like, okay, I think the the cool thing is that they understand the value of money. Mm-hmm. We've taught them to actually make money, you know, because they do things that helps them make money. We've taught them to save money. And we've just taught them to think about money. I, I, I can't take all the glory for this. My wife has been really good at this too. She's um when we before we got married, we went to what's it called? Um Dave Ramsey's um Financial Peace University. Yeah, I think that's what Dave Ramsey calls it. So it's a it's a place where you learn about about managing money and, and making money work for you. So I think that helped both of us to think similarly about finance. All right. Um, now, going back to Overwood, for someone listening to this who is pretty much interested or who whose interest is picked into taking this further, maybe investing with Overwood or inquiring about their, your services, how can listeners key into this? www.overwood.ng Overwood is O-V-E-R-W-O-O-D dot N-G, right? Um, so you can actually chat with us online. If you don't want to chat, you see a phone number that you can use to call us. If you don't want to call us, you can send an email to hello at overwood dot N-G. And, um, you know, somebody will be there to got a bunch of really, really nice um customer experience people that will make sure that you have a good experience with Overwood. All right. So um, just as we begin to draw the curtains, even on this um, this session or today's episode, um, are there any last words you want to leave? Any key points that you really want listeners to take home? For me, I think it's the fact that I strongly believe that all things are possible if you're willing to to believe and fight for them. Right. Everything is possible. Um, I've heard people say that, um, oh, I grew up poor, so it's impossible to to have this or attain this. Or um, I don't know anybody, so I can't become this or attain this. Right. My view is that you really don't need anybody. You need yourself, a healthy self-belief and a lot of willpower and ability to fight. And everything is possible. I remembered um, when I was working full-time in Nigeria, it was 2001, and um, I wanted to study for my for my GRE so that I could eventually apply for a master's degree and go to America. So I was I was living in Aja and working in Maryland. If you know if you know Lagos, you know that's easily a two three hour journey yeah, both ways, right? Pulls apart. <laughs> exactly. And so most nights I'll get home around um, nine ten o'clock, but I knew I had to study for the GRE, so I'll stay up and study till about one a.m. literally every day, and then I'll be up at five thirty again and head off to the office. And I did this for almost four five months. Well, I mean, you do, you shouldn't do this every day of your life, but at that time I had the goal, and I desperately wanted to to do it. I wanted to do so well that a school somewhere would give me a scholarship, right? So it meant it meant sleeping four or five hours a night, every night for almost almost five months while I was studying. And today, that one decision to work hard changed everything about me. You know, I remember getting to university and 
um, one professor came to me and said, Tyre, you're working too hard. It's not necessary. Like, why do you have to work so hard? And I looked at her and I said, I'll never forget her, Dr. Winfield. I said, Dr. Winfield, I have two things against me. Number one, I'm black. Number two, I speak with an accent. So that means that every time I show up for a job interview, I already have two stripes, right? And so I have to be twice as good as everybody else to get what they got, you know? And I remember I did so well that it was during my second year of my PhD program that I already had an, an offer in hand to become an assistant professor. I rejected that offer and took another offer much later in, in the, when I when I was a much more senior doctoral student. But I, I had a job offer before I left university, primarily because I was willing to work harder, right? And I keep saying these things because young people of today, all they tell you is work smart, right? But the truth is, hard work plus a lot of strategies takes you where you want to go. Strategy minus hard work takes you nowhere, right? So in my view, it's about putting in the time, putting in the efforts, making sure that you do more than the next guy, right? And even in my professional life, I remember when I became CEO of Stockholm Media Perspectives in Nigeria, right? My first, you know, six months or so, I was working till almost 9, 10 p.m. every day just ensuring that we had the processes in place, we had the proper operation in place, our, strat our strategic in thrust was the right way to go, and all that stuff, until the business stabilized. And then, of course, I had to then go back to a normal whatever. But that was what was required then. So in my view, young people should ask what is required, not what is the barest minimum that I need to do, what's required to get the job done. And that may mean a lot more time. It may mean a lot more effort. But hard work never killed anybody, especially when you're young. So that's um, that's the word I'd like to leave with young people everywhere. Go for it. Anything is possible. Work hard. Be strategic. And all your dreams will come true. Thank you very, very, very much for your time today. I know how much it must have cost or how much you would have sacrificed even to get this time scheduled out to us. Thank you very, very much. And um, I would just like to say, <laughs> I would just like to say that your impact is immense. You are touching quite a lot of lives. Thank you very much for doing what you do. You do. Thank you for giving back to society. And uh, my regards to the entire family. And I'm one of your cheerleaders. We'll keep cheering you on from the sidelines, sir. Thank you so much, my brother. I appreciate you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you very much, sir.